It's condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I wanted to present an episode of the music of Harry Potter and getting ready for the Alabama Symphony playing Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets on April 12th and 13th at the Wright Center on Sanford's campus. So I thought, who better than the conductor of that show to come in and talk to us about the music and the themes and what they represent and how they're used. And fortunately, I was able to do that and have Chris Confessori, our Pops, what, what is your official title? Pops? Principal Pops Principal conductor. Pops Conductor. I should know that because I've worked with you long enough, but now there's an official document, official record now. Um, we're very fortunate to have him to talk to us. Chris loves, I think he's a big movie fan in general, and this music I'm sure he spent a lot of time loving and listening to and now conducting it. He's gotten to to know the score on a deeper level, I assume, and so he was very happy, seemingly, to talk to me about this today. So the first thing I'd like to do before we get into the music is have Chris talk to us a little bit about the process of composing music for a film. So we're going to start with you get the call, and we're going to try to work all the way up until the music is being recorded by a studio or an orchestra or whomever might be recording it. So, Chris, why don't you take us through, say a composer just got the call, what's their first step going to be? Well, I think it varies from composer to composer. Some composers like to read the script while they're waiting for the actual, you know, final cut of the film to be handed over to them. Uh, Since we're today talking specifically about John Williams, I know his process is that he usually does not look at the script. He wants to sit down and watch the movie as his first impression of everything. He wants to see the images, get a get a feel for the, you know, the visual aesthetic uh, and so forth. So he's uh, he's different in that regard. Uh, but um, the composer's job doesn't really begin until they have that locked, edited film. Uh, everything we do with the music has to do with uh, perfectly synchronizing everything to that locked film, so we can't really start the process until until that happens. So they have to work quickly, the composer does, and then uh, he or she will have a team of orchestrators, people that they will hand the written music off to, and they will flesh it out by, you know, deciding, you know, this passage is going to be scored for the French horns with muted trombones accompanying it and so on and so forth. Uh, The composer probably gives a rough sketch of the type of color and sound that they would like, but the orchestrator is the one that does the job of, um, of fleshing all of that out. Then there's another team of copyists who uh, prepare the printed uh, parts that uh, studio musicians perform from. A series of uh, studio recording sessions are, are set up over a number of days, uh, and piece by piece, uh, the, the score is recorded. They do playbacks like they do in any recording session, but then, you know, they're also matching it up with the visual. Um, generally, in a in a studio recording uh, for a film, the entire orchestra has headsets on where they have a click track going, and that has everything to do with this uh, synchronization. The conductor has both a click track and at their conductor stand, 
there are one or sometimes more than one monitors that show both the film as well as superimposed on top of the film different uh, time counters and and flashes and blips and everything that give us information on how to you know prepare for an upcoming tempo change and so so, so will you have that one of those monitors when you conduct with us so when we do our performance the orchestra will not have click track and i won't have a click track but i will have one of these monitors that has all that information and um since we're podcast, I can't I can't show you that, but I, I'll try to describe it. Up in the top right hand corner, uh, there is a, a counter that'll say like a six and then a slash with a one, two, three, four. So that means measure six and then beat one, two, three, four. Okay. So in lieu of a click, I can kind of look at that sure. if I need that as a guide. And then the the other two very helpful and important. Uh, visual cues that come across there are are what are called streamers and punches and a streamer uh, is a uh, is a line that travels across the screen from left to right in sequence and it's sort of a warning that something is coming usually a tempo change and then a punch is a flash like a circle flash in the middle of the screen and that will you know that helps you visually uh set a downbeat with you know like an explosion on screen or or some okay yeah yeah. some visual effect and oftentimes they'll have a sequence of flashes to again sort of serve as a as a visual metronome uh in a new tempo so maybe they'll give you four or six flashes to help you set this new tempo but we have to be able to play with what you're doing right instead of having the click track in our ears it's so it's a little bit more of an organic experience from our perspective but i'm sure it's harder to line some of that stuff up without everybody being on the same page with the click track absolutely yeah so i remember a couple of years ago i did the singing in the rain Mm -hmm. movie with the soundtrack with indianapolis and that was even worse because there wasn't a click track and he had a lot of the things you were describing but even from there, sometimes all that information would just disappear. And essentially, it was like his knowledge of the movie that was getting us through. It's a very, very cool book, but a slightly stressful experience from that perspective, you know. But it all went really well because uh, it's Jack Everly sure. who was doing that. He's great. He's, he's great. So um, he knew what he was doing. But yeah, it's pretty – basically, the conductor – has so much more, I assume, going on than just what you would normally have, right. which is a lot going on right. in a given concert to be able well, to line this stuff up. the challenge with those, you know, Singing in the Rain, we did The Wizard of Oz here year, a few years before you came. Um, but the challenges those films in concert pose is you have uh, the the vocal track, the singing is still present. So... You know, you're accompanying Judy Garland singing Over the Rainbow or or Gene Kelly singing Singing in the Rain. So you have to be perfectly in time with right. that. And for the I don't know what Jack had as far as visual tools to uh, to line up with. For Wizard of Oz, we didn't have a click track or uh, these streamers and, and flashes. I had like an old school, like a clock that would be in a classroom with a second hand. That's what he had. Yeah. yeah. And... You know, that's not as precise as all <laughs> yeah. these digital digital things. And the way those films were edited, like in the, a lot of the Munchkin sequences, like even a march, you know, pretty steady tempo. But if if there was a splice in the music uh, at some point, you know, the, the slight tempo fluctuation, 
is so distorted when when that splice was here. There's like a steady snare drum part that all of a sudden had to go like three clicks faster. At yeah. this. It was so... That was more difficult or more stressful than I anticipate this Sure, will be. sure. Just because yeah. of, like you said, the digital component yeah. of it. But. Yeah. So I don't know, just a kind of an interesting thing. I did not myself know the process of how mm-hmm. it comes to life, you know, and we sort of can take it for granted because the music is just there in the movie and we just accept it for what it is. And so this next part of the podcast, I hope, will be interesting for people to sort of be able to connect with the music of the movie a little bit more than maybe they would just listening to it. It's amazing music, but knowing what these themes are might make you appreciate the compositional process or just how they orchestrate it, and then how the themes and how they're orchestrated affect the overall mood and the tension of a scene um, more so than without those beautiful orchestrations and things like that. So um, we'll move on to that part, I guess. Okay. So for this episode, I thought it might be kind of cool, instead of telling people what the theme is and then playing the theme, we should first play the theme and then have everyone at home listening try to guess what they think this theme represents, either based on their knowledge of the movies that they've seen probably many times, or just kind of what the uh, the character of it might be suggesting. So we're going to take a listen to our first excerpt, and then we will let everybody know what that excerpt is. So, what did we just listen to, Chris? Well, that was the uh, music that is referred to on the CD as Hedwig's theme. To me, it's the most, if you had to select a single iconic sounding theme from the entire Harry Potter universe, it would be that theme. That's the only theme that has been used in all eight of the Harry Potter films. You know, John Williams scored just the first three of the the eight films. I think there were three other composers, three or four that scored the other films. Uh, but that theme is so iconic, uh, it's been used in every single one. It opens up every single movie, right? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes in a in a spookier, darker, less magical, happy sounding uh, version, you know, but uh uh but yeah and it's it's great and it's it's uh the other than uh Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, I think it's the single greatest use of the celeste ever yeah, in, right, uh, right. in orchestral music. When when the Alabama Symphony got its beautiful uh, uh, celeste, the two excerpts we used to show it off at a Pops concert were Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy and this thing. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So for the one person out there listening who may not know who Hedwig is, hmm. who is Hedwig in the Harry Potter series? So Hedwig is... Harry's pet owl, beautiful white owl. 
So this theme, uh, you know, it has a sense of light, of motion, of soaring to it. Uh, but, um, yeah, for, for whatever reason, uh, John Williams gave it that title of Hedwig's theme, but it appears throughout even the three films he scored plenty of times when Hedwig is nowhere to be found uh, on screen. It's just, you know, one of the basic magical iconic Harry Potter. Yeah. I would have assumed it was Harry's theme, Right. right? It's just, it's very interesting to me that he would have named it Hedwig's theme and put it, like you said, put it everywhere. Um, I don't know. Very interesting decision, I suppose. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next one. This is what the second excerpt sounds like. What did we just listen to? Well, we have two uh, two little melodies sort of in quick succession. Uh, and these are both uh, part of what is called a, a track on the CD called Harry's Wondrous World. Uh, but they're th- different themes that represent Hogwarts. Uh, they are used uh, throughout, uh, you know, the first three films that John Williams composed, you know, to depict, you know, when it's a cut shot of the of the castle from the exterior. Maybe it'll use the first of these two little themes we heard. And then the other ones, the yump, bump, beam, bump is oftentimes an interior mm-hmm. uh, shot, oftentimes like in the Great Hall, right, the Banquet right. Hall and so forth is is uh, one of his go-to motives uh, uh, for that kind of setup. Yeah, it's so, the especially the interior shot, I feel like mm-hmm. there's so much majesty. And then it's, off, like you said, often in company with a shot, it's like golds and yes. sparkly things and tons of kids everywhere, just like kind of the wonder of what these kids are probably feeling being at Hogwarts after a long summer away. I feel like it's very, you know, descriptive or cinematic in that right. way. It really sets that mood quite well i feel like so and the first the first little motive has a little more of a nostalgic feel yeah, to it and yeah. i think that ties into the mood you just described and especially uh, at the end of these first couple of films when it's we have to leave here and yeah. leave all our friends and go home there's a little little uh, variant of that same motive that they use that's very tender and heartwarming yeah. and uh, yeah those are two great motives all right we'll move on to the third motive let's see if you can figure out what this represents What did we just listen to? 
Well, this is music that we hear when uh, Harry and Hagrid make their visit to Diagon Alley, which is sort of the, uh, you know, the wizarding world's uh, marketplace. So when he needs to buy his uh, his textbooks, his cauldron, go get his his wand uh, from Ollivander's wand shop in the in the first movie. Uh, you know, this is the music we hear to set that mood. And again, you know, we talked about orchestration earlier. Um, you know, the the selection of instruments, it always appears with those instruments uh, that we heard playing, which are recorders, you know, kind of, I mean, you know, we all took like music class in right. third or fourth grade and played those little recorders. Same thing. I mean, nicer instruments, right. professional <laughs> instruments, but, but same idea. And it just... Again, it has such a specific and unique sound, sort of, you know, Renaissance character or mm-hmm. whatever, but it, it it sets you in a specific place and time. Yeah, and I think it's in the movie, you know, you see this place and you're kind of experiencing it, obviously, with Harry. And I just think it's another great example. We'll probably say this about every single one of these <laughs> themes, but it's just a great example of how the music can make this thing seem even more wondrous and sort of what's that over there and what's that over there and kind of you're with Harry on this journey of being exposed to this thing that he just can't even imagine exists and yeah I think the music is such a key component of establishing that which like I said we'll probably say that about every single one of these themes so maybe I don't have to mention it every single time but um, I just think it's incredible in that regard so all right we'll move on to the fourth theme. This is what that theme sounds like. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but do you happen to know what this theme represents? <laughs> this one is a favorite of uh, of you and your uh, your brass section uh, uh, colleagues. That's the music for the Quidditch match. And uh, great uh, fanfare. I have excerpted uh, passages from this to show off the brass section in, in youth concerts. Again, a, you know, a great, uh, great use of the uh, the resources of the orchestra. It's got a great sense of uh, of pageantry, you know, I mean, almost, you know, he wrote, John Williams gave us some of the iconic music for Olympic broadcasts. I think in some regard, these fanfares kind of, uh, you know, call to mind that that same sense of pageantry. And, and again, if you think about it from the first time you're experiencing all this, either as a kid at Hogwarts or even as a, as a viewer of these films for the first time, what is Quidditch? Well, this is... You know, ta-da, great fanfare. This is what Quidditch is. When I was trying to remember what it looks like in the movie, and I think it's almost one of those, like, you know, tunnel walk shots for Mm -hmm. a second, and then you just see this huge arena with, like, tons of kids. And, yeah, it really, like you said, sort of the grandiose nature of it really is enhanced just by, like, the, wow, this is, like, a thing. You know, this is a real thing here at Hogwarts. It's their sport, obviously, but I think, yeah, the music depicts that incredibly well. 
Um, yeah, it's a great theme. Obviously, like you said, very fun to play for the brass. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, the trumpet part is weirdly kind of absent in the first movie. I mean, there's mm-hmm. good trumpet parts, uh-huh. but compared to what the strings and the woodwinds and even other brass instruments are doing, uh, there's not a lot for the trumpet in terms of technically, you know, and basically the Quidditch match is by far the hardest thing because it's just kind of nonstop and you have all these... Uh, I think there's a lot of danger in that section, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's usually like a trumpet's job, right? <laughs> to do scary things or whatever. So that's where it starts to get a lot more angular and a lot more rhythmic and things like that. But yeah, the Quidditch stuff often is representative of just really beautiful brass writing, whether it's grandiose or yeah, a little bit more strident, so to speak. So uh, here goes the next theme. See if you can figure out what this is. This is a very familiar theme to me. Uh, What is that theme? Well, again, it's uh, meant to represent something specific uh, in its original uh, presentation of the theme, and that is uh, Harry's broomstick, the Nimbus 2000. But again, it's such a such a catchy tune, uh, you know, and, and such a unique sound. It's used time and time again, um, completely out of context, you know, having nothing to do with the broomstick or Quidditch or anything else. It just becomes another of those magical, you know, wizarding world motives that gets used throughout uh, all three of these first films. I think on the soundtrack, this is called Devil Takes Flight. Mm-hmm. So I, if I'm not wrong, that's the first time it appears. And in the movie, that's where Neville, they don't even know what broomsticks are and that they can <laughs> fly. And they're trying to figure it out. And then Neville accidentally takes off. And it's just an interesting character or color to, to pair with this thing. It's kind of got this weird mystery to it. It's not scary, right? Mm-hmm. You would think flying for the first time would be scary, but it kind of puts this, yeah, mysterious kind of like what's happening, but sort of quirky flavor to it, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's really neat. These kids handled all of this pretty well. When yeah, you think seriously, of, they I were mean, like they, 12 or Yeah, 11. they threw a lot of stuff at them, and <laughs> right. they yeah, seemed pretty so, well yeah. adjusted. Yeah. All right, that was the Nimbus 2000 theme. Here comes the next theme. See if you can figure out what it is. Here's our first spooky theme, so we can imagine it represents something spooky or bad. Are are we right? What does this represent? Absolutely, you're correct. So this is, in the first film, uh, the motive is referred to as the Sorcerer's Stone. Ultimately, uh, comes to depict Voldemort himself uh, in, um, in these first couple of films that John Williams scored. I love the the passage you selected where it's you know that spooky color it's not 
the full-blown big uh, version we hear later in this film, and especially in the second film, The Chamber of Secrets, uh, it's used uh, to great effect when uh, the Voldemort character is revealed uh, in there. It's full brass, and and as you, that's probably a, a big trumpet moment yeah, uh, right, in that yeah. film. Yeah. Again, using the trumpets to depict something scary or strident, I think, is a... You know, a fun but also a great orchestration yeah. choice. Um, all right, we'll move on to the next theme, and we'll see if you can figure it out. That was a very beautiful and pretty theme. What does that represent? So this is the first theme we're sharing with you today that is uh, presented for the first time in the second film, the Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, This is the character Fox the Phoenix, the phoenix that belongs to Professor Dumbledore. And uh, it's a gorgeous, soaring theme. Uh, It is uh, utilized uh, several times uh, throughout the movie, uh, Fox uh, comes through as as one of the great heroes in in this story. Really saves Harry uh, down in the Chamber of Secrets, and uh, you know is is able to help uh, Dumbledore help Harry uh, on on this big uh, big quest and mission. Yeah. So, what is it about this theme that you think depicts Fox so well? You know, I feel like it it does, right? Mm-hmm. Especially with this idea that he's a phoenix that can fly, and mm-hmm. kind of what things do you think represent that musically very well? Well, it's a gradually ascending uh, melody, right? And so, it in that regard, I guess it conveys a sense of flight. But it's totally different from Hedwig's theme, right? That had a million notes for the violins. Uh, this is like a sense of calmness. Yeah, with it. much yeah. more grand, and I think, uh, yeah, the calming. You know, he's he's there as a as a helper, a friend, as as someone who totally makes a difference in uh, in in the entire story. So yeah, it's it's you know, both of my sons are huge fans of the Harry Potter uh, franchise. And my younger son, this out of all the melodies, this is his favorite oh, one. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Fox. Yeah. No, I just think, and especially sort of the beauty and the weightiness mm-hmm. of this theme. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's this sense of regalness, calmness, peace almost. Mm-hmm. And, and that part in the movie, it's kind of the part where I don't want to ruin it for anyone <laughs> who hasn't somehow seen this movie, but. There's a part where it's tense, and then Fox the Phoenix comes in, and it's at a moment where it's like, here you go, like, all is well, you know? And then the music really, yeah, it really depicts that so well. This We take the tension of this moment and then just overlay this beautiful theme, and you're like, everything's cool, you know? Everything's okay. I think it's expertly done. Nice job, John. And that's a kind of a go-to orchestration color for him. It is... French horns and cellos in unison. And I can think off the top of my head of two other iconic John Williams uh, melodies from totally different films that use that color. Yoda's theme uses that color. And, you know, again, calm, wise, you know, important. 
and then even in the Superman film, the uh, the melody that the one that's called the love theme from Superman, um, that is Lois Lane and Superman flying around, uses that same color of the French horn and the cello in unison. And it's gorgeous. Cool. Yeah. So that's sort of a section of themes you're going to hear that are recurring, that are very important to these movies, um, that kind of represent these movies a lot, just because, like you said, you're going to hear them so much. We're going to move on now to a couple of interesting themes that might uh, introduce some characters, but you might not hear them as much, or uh, they won't be as pervasive throughout all of the movies. The first one is, Chris told me there's kind of a musical Easter egg with this one, so I wanted to include it just so when you're listening to it, you can go, oh, that's cool. It's a section of the movie where there's a bunch of spiders and there's a scary moment. And Chris said the, the music that's representing that part has is pretty interesting. And I'll just let him talk about that. Well, yeah, what uh, what I think uh, is so interesting about this, and it's sort of an inside, uh, as you say, Easter egg uh, from John Williams. It's uh, it's a little motive that is presented in eight note groups ascending and um and so spiders as we know have eight legs and so you know that's a conscious decision on his part uh, to present it and it's and it's in a, as many musical phrases are in eight bar groups and that's not anything when i watched the movie the first or the 15th time i ever caught but as i'm studying the music and looking at it i thought oh Look at this. He's, yeah. uh, and, and it's absolutely what you say, a musical Easter egg and, and fun. So I think everybody will be able to hear that. Also, we're going to introduce two themes, one for Dobby the Elf and another for Gilderoy Lockhart. The, these themes, Chris was saying, and I'll let him talk more about this, and I think if you just touch on if this is common or not, you won't hear these themes in their entirety, but you will hear them when maybe these characters come on screen, almost like a light motif that Wagner would use in his operas. And, and so we're just going to introduce them. This is Dobby's theme. Here we have Gilderoy Lockhart's theme. So, 
Chris, do you mind talking to us a little bit about these themes, how they represent the characters pretty well, and then how they might be used within the movie to let you know something about this character that might have subtext? Sure. Well, when we meet Dobby, we don't know what he is or what his deal is. You know, when we first meet him in this movie, he ends up over the course of, again, seven books and eight movies being one of the most important heroic characters in this entire uh, story. But when we meet him in Harry's bedroom at the start of this uh, Chamber of Secrets film, we don't know what he is. And and he's kind of a jerk, kind of, I mean, clearly a troublemaker. But but then as time goes on, we realize that is his aim. He's trying to to keep Harry away from Hogwarts and and trying to keep Harry safe, as many people uh, do throughout the course of, uh, of these stories. So it's a... And obviously, John Williams himself didn't know what the deal was with Dobby, uh, you know, this early in the sure. in the franchise. And so the theme he gives us, you know, it's a little, uh, I mean, it's, I guess, got impish humor to it. And uh, it's certainly got mystery to it. You can tell it's it's a little on the comical side. But, um, you know, by by the end of the series, it's knowing what we know now about Dobby. It's not the kind of music I would think to associate sure, with yeah. that character at all. So it's interesting uh, to me. And um, the same with the Gilderoy Lockhart. I mean, I think that conveys the character perfectly. You know, somebody who's full of themselves. And and so this is a very sort of mock pompous, uh, you know, quasi classical sounding, uh, I guess, march theme or motive. And um, where we hear it the most is there's a sequence uh, set up where Gilderoy Lockhart, who is the defense against the dark arts teacher, has a exhibition of a duel between himself and Professor Snape. Mm-hmm. And so in the buildup and the setup for all of that, you know, as as Lockhart is setting himself up, we hear this motive quite a bit. And then Snape just destroys it. <laughs> and that's the end of it. Uh, and, but that motive comes uh, comes back uh, several times. But we hear it in a more complete form. Uh, the excerpts you've shared with us. And when you have these CDs or or download them or whatever, um, when these recordings are prepared, uh, John Williams will oftentimes give us what is called concert versions Mm -hmm. of some of these themes. Even going back to Star Wars, everything goes back to Star Wars, right? Princess Leia's theme, you know, the, the version of Princess Leia's theme that we love performing in concert, one of the most beautiful passages, hardly you know, appears at all in in the Star Wars film. Uh, but he created this as as a concert feature. Right. And he's continued to do that throughout his career. And for uh, for this film, it was Fox the Phoenix, Gildor Lockhart, and Dobby the House Elf were the three tracks that he decided he would be able to give, uh, you know, complete versions that would be suitable for concert use. Do you think he does that at the time or this is after the movie's over? He's like, OK, I can spend some time doing it. Well, it's done, you know, when the recording is made. Um, I mean, it's, oh, par- yeah. it's part of the the process uh, of making the recording because everybody's there. Um, and that's probably, you know, he's always listed as a producer of these uh, albums. And so that's probably part of the deal. Yeah. And, you know, again, with the uh, what's called the prequel trilogy of star wars the episode one two and three 
Um, it was a conscious decision, not just of John Williams, but uh, of Lucasfilm um, to create one iconic, uh, you know, standalone concert piece. And that was when, you know, MTV was still a thing. And so we didn't just get a rollout of a, of a trailer like we do now for these new Star Wars films. There was a music video. So like Duel of the Fates from episode one was presented to everybody as a music video. And it was that oh, concert yeah. version that and it had, you know, it was sequences from many parts of the film. But it was done like that. And the... um the love theme from episode two, uh, same thing. Um, and then the one called Battle of the Heroes from episode right. three, the lava yeah. fight, uh, was the same thing. All three of those were were presented as uh, on the albums as, as concert selections, but were edited as music videos on MTV. Nice. Back in the day. I didn't know that. I've played them, obviously, a couple <laughs> of times, but I didn't realize they would have been made specifically to promote the movie like that. So for this last theme, we're going to listen to it, but we're going to give a little bit longer of a, of a play here so you can really experience this. This is the section, Chris told me, and it says also on the CD, where they're dueling the basilisk at the end of the movie. And we're just going to listen to it and how it kind of evolves and, and what goes on. And then I'd like Chris to talk about some of the challenges that not only the studio musicians would face putting this together, but then also how it translates to what an orchestra has to do to put this together, because they're two very different things. And I just think it's something to draw attention to that what they, what we do in the orchestra is not going to be the same thing that happens in the recording studio. And so it might provide additional challenges for us as we're performing it on stage. So here is that theme. Just a ton of really incredible music, obviously very intense, very active. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what the challenges an orchestra might face are as opposed to maybe what the studios might deal with when they're recording it over a number of days? Right. So answering in opposite uh, or backwards, you know, in, in the recording studio, uh, they would break this apart into into sequences. You know, we're going to do these 70 measures uh, or, or maybe less, you know, as a take and edit and go back and then we'll, we'll do this next passage and so on and so forth. And as you say, it's, it's over multiple sessions. That's not all going to, you know, I forget how long the, the complete track is, but if it's five or six minutes, that's not going to be achieved uh, in a single recording session, you know, for a sequence like this. Um, it's, you know, the most complex, most challenging music to perform out of this entire score. 
for us giving a live performance of this. It's uh, the most intense music we'll play uh, the entire afternoon or evening. And, um, you know, will be the most edge of our seat moment uh, for everybody in the orchestra. And, um, you know, the challenge is, you know, as you can hear, there are so many different moods, so many different tempos, sequences, uh, and and that's where all these, you know, the lack of the click track, but the help of the counter, the punches and the streamers that I uh, talked about earlier uh, are key to the success of, of me being able to convey all the information I need to give to to you all in the orchestra to make this uh, happen. But in all of these, you know, it's been a trend over the last five or six years uh, that that there are performances of these films in in concert. And um, John Williams himself has said, you know, obviously he thinks it's great. Uh, it it lets audiences appreciate uh, the impact of the music in the films in an entirely different way. It's such a different experience than just listening to the recording, you know. Um, but he never would have conceived, you know, that an orchestra would be expected right. to sit down sure. in two and a half or three hours and just play through the whole score. And and some of them, uh, the Star Wars film called Return of the Jedi has the most notoriously challenging of all these films in concert that I've heard of, the most notoriously difficult uh, final battle sequence is really three battles happening simultaneously they're trying to blow up the death star again there's all of that um there's all the ewoks fighting you know with the stormtroopers on endor and then there's the whole sequence between luke and vader and the emperor happening right and so it's constantly cutting between those three things and it's constant music i mean it feels like it's more than 20 minutes of continuous back and forth and most of it incredibly fast and intense. And, you know, this sequence with the basilisk is not uh, as long as that, but it's the same idea. This is the, you know, the battle scene of this film and the greatest challenge for us. Um, You know, I know uh, our fantastic Alabama Symphony Orchestra will rise to that challenge. Sure, yeah. And uh, it's uh, so exciting to get to do this. I I did not get to conduct uh, uh, the first film in this Harry Potter sequence when y'all did it last season. And I was thrilled to hear that they were allowing the, you know, the symphony uh, conductor to start uh, doing these. Originally, the company that presents these Cineconcerts you know, had, I think, just two or three conductors on their roster that they were uh, they were going to have go out and do these. They did not anticipate how popular they would right, be. Right. And they've more than triple, quadruple, quintuple booked themselves on weekends. So their roster of conductors had to be uh, had to be expanded. Sure. So that's that's, uh, you know, exciting for me, as you said, uh, at the top of this, uh, I love this music and. And this is a totally different uh, process than just performing the concert excerpt. So I'm excited about yeah. it. Uh, before we end this episode, I just wanted to take a second. Chris was talking to me about how busy John Williams was mm. around this same exact time and the other kinds of movies he was working on. And I just want to take a second to talk about that because it's just that much more amazing to know that he put together this score 
while oh, he was right. putting together everything else that he was doing. Yeah, that's so. always interesting with with symphonic composers too. You know, I'm conducting Dvorak's Sixth Symphony with the orchestra later this season. I'm always curious, you know, what else was he writing around that time, you know? And so I looked that up uh, as far as John Williams go. Uh, what were the scores he was working on before and after this? And so this was a 2002 release, The Chamber of Secrets. In 2001 was the release of the first Harry Potter film, The Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, right after that, he did the Steven Spielberg film Minority Report. And then after that, the Star Wars Episode Two, the one called Attack of the Clones, that had a massive score, you know, like... Very few sequences in that film where there was no music, you know. Um, and then there was this Chamber of Secrets. And then the next film that he scored after that was another Spielberg film, the one called Catch Me If You Can, which, you know, when we were talking about it beforehand today, that blows us both away that that's even John Williams right. when you so hear it. so different, yeah. yeah. And it just shows his range and his versatility as just an incredible musician not just a great film composer who does these movies really well but he can clearly do it all and just want to highlight how amazing he is not only as a film composer but just like i said his versatility his yeah. musical knowledge how to what instruments to give things to and all that kind of stuff so we just wanted to kind of put that out there um there's something to think about and something to appreciate about john williams so Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this is a really cool thing. I feel like I learned a lot about this, and I hope it's just a useful resource for people as they're, you know, going to come to our concert, hopefully, but if they're not in Birmingham and they just are going to watch the movie, just for them to be able to look at that and appreciate how the themes are used, how they're orchestrated to create different moods and different colors and things like that. And I appreciate your expertise and that you were willing to come in. Thanks for having me. I would also like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And I would like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time.